it's funny because I grew up with two artists for parents. And when I was a little kid, I wanted to get into advertising. And my dad said, you don't want to get to the end of your life and realize that you've just sold a lot of pickles. He didn't want me to get into any kind of a sales role, but I really loved it. I would secretly come up with advertising campaigns and jingles in my spare time, but I went to college and I studied art. And then I went to grad school with the idea that I would be a writer for The New Yorker. And while I was in grad school, I had a friend who worked for Timberland and her copywriter dropped out. And a friend of mine said, you know, you'd be really good at coming up with names for these products. Why don't I just introduce you? I'd never done anything like that before, but it was so much fun and I loved it. And so I just had to stop listening to my dad and got into advertising. <laughs> Welcome. I'm your host, Dino Cattaneo, and you're listening to Authentic Leadership for Everyday People the podcast where we investigate the connection between effective leadership and authenticity. If you're looking for inspiration and tips on how to become a better leader by being your true self, you're in the right place. In our last episode, we talked about leadership through the two lenses of fun and finance. Our guest was Pam Pryor, who went from being a CFO for large and medium companies to building a business that provides finance support for entrepreneurs. Our guest today was actually introduced to me by another guest, You may remember my friend Scarlett Keys and her story about giving a TEDx talk on songwriting. She kept telling me how extraordinary the woman who produced the TEDx event was and that I should meet her. When I finally did, it was clear that not only Scarlett was right, but that she would also make a great guest for the show. So here she is. Anna Goldsmith is the founder of The Hired Pants, a copywriting agency that is now over 20 years old. And if you know the business of advertising, you know that keeping an agency go for that long is not always easy. We spent time discussing how she and her partner founded the agency and how they set up their partnership to make sure that it made the goals for both of them. We also touched on how the rise of ChatGPT has impacted their business, both the positive and the negative sides. Anna has been the producer for TEDx Sportsman for six years, and a very important part of the role is preparing the speakers to deliver a successful talk. So I had to tap into her expertise to get some pointers for those of you who may be thinking about doing a TED talk. Finally. As a way to diversify for the impact of ChatGPT, Anna started offering speech writing and delivery coaching services. And she also offers an online workshop for people who are interested in creating a tech talk. So I want to share with you that I will actually be attending that workshop because I'm very curious. Enjoy the show. Anna, it's great to have you here. I'm going to have you start like I start all these conversations. Please introduce yourself to my listeners and you can take as little time or as much time as you want. Okay. I had to introduce myself this morning in 15 seconds. So we'll see how much longer it is than that. So my name is Anna Goldsmith and I run a company called The Hired Pens, the copywriting agency that I've had for about 20 years. And about six years ago, I started producing a TEDx event up here in Portsmouth, New Hampshire. That's great. So let's start peeling back on all your little adventures. How did you start a copywriting company. What was that journey? Yeah, it's a funny journey. I was 26. And I just been let go from a dot com that was sold to another company and they got rid of everyone. And I was dating a guy whose friend was in the same situation. He was also a copywriter. And we said, why don't we just put up a website and just we'll just start doing some freelance writing until something else comes along until we get a full time job. And it's been 22 years. So 
it really worked out. He's a perfect business partner. We really complement each other so well. I've always liked running my own companies. When I was a little kid, I was always starting little companies in my backyard, trying to get money from the neighbor kids, doing things like that. So I'd actually had a business partner before him and we just didn't click. We didn't have the same sense of humor. And I was really happy when he decided that he wanted to go off to art school instead of continuing. So Dan's just been a great, just been a great team. We really, we complement each other really well. And part of why I started a company was I wanted time to do other things at the time, I was doing some screenwriting. I've always been an artist, and I thought managing my own time would be a way to have more of it. That's been true. It's interesting. You're balancing art and business. Along the journey, when did the business side took over and became really important, or have you been able to balance both? Well, it's funny because I grew up with two artists for parents, and when I was a little kid, I wanted to get into advertising. And my dad said, you don't want to get to the end of your life and realize that you've just sold a lot of pickles. He didn't want me to get into any kind of a sales role, but I really loved it. I would secretly come up with advertising campaigns and jingles in my spare time, but I went to college and I studied art. And then I went to grad school with the idea that I would be a writer for The New Yorker. And while I was in grad school, I had a friend who worked for Timberland and her copywriter dropped out. And a friend of mine said, you know, you'd be really good at coming up with names for these products. Why don't I just introduce you? I'd never done anything like that before, but it was so much fun and I loved it. And so I just had to stop listening to my dad and got into advertising. (laughs) So I've always done both. There's a lot of entrepreneurs who listen to this. And one of the questions that always fascinate me is finding the right partner or sometimes finding the wrong partner. There are people who say that avoiding mistakes is more important than getting things right. Let's start with some of the things to watch out for as you're finding a business partner. I think you have to have the same goals. And I think you have to be good at different things. I've had good experiences with partners and bad experiences. With with Ted, my first partner with Ted, TEDx Portsmouth, She and I were good at all the same things. And it was not a good partnership because we were always sort of stepping on each other's toes. But with my business partner, Dan, we have such a good balance. He jokes that he keeps us from being sued. And then I go out and find our new clients. So there's a nice, there's a nice balance. There's a lot of respect and we just like each other. We like each other and respect each other a lot. And again, we're good at different things. I think you have to really trust your business partner. He likes to joke with my husband that he could rob me blind and I'd never know because I never look at our financial statements. So it's it's just good that I trust him. <laughs> Unless I'm wrong, all these years later, I'll be like, man, I was making so much more money and I didn't even know. Well, maybe you should go look at your financial <laughs> statements after this. I know, I know. <laughs> what are some of the things that you put in place as your partnership developed to make sure that the work partnership was productive and good for both of you? Yeah, that's a great question. So when we first started out, we decided we were going to work 40 hours a week and we had a vacation calendar and I just hated it. It wasn't at all how I wanted to work. I really wanted to work so I could do other things and manage my own time. And suddenly I was getting into a situation where that wasn't what was happening and we were splitting everything down the middle. So if he was working, he was giving me half of what he made from a project and vice versa. So we have a system that we implemented maybe about six months into our business that that works out really well for us, where 
there are clients that are his clients, there are clients that are my clients, and then there are shared clients. And then we have about, this this is probably going to sound complicated for your listeners, but it, it makes a lot of sense to us. We have a lot of writers who work for us as contractors. So when one of our writers does a project for us, we split the profits 50-50. But he has his own clients that he's just got on his own. He does the work himself. There are no contractors involved, and he gets to keep the money for that. And that's actually worked out really well. He actually works a lot more than I do. And that's fine. And it wasn't fine before when we were splitting everything down the middle. That's been a really good system for us. They were touching on something really important that entrepreneurs are often uncomfortable getting into, which is figuring out the different things that partners may want out of a venture and then creating a structure for the venture that matches the individual goals. Yeah. So that's a pretty complicated conversation to get in. I don't know if you're willing to share how you got into it and maybe some advice for people who are starting out setting up a venture and maybe thinking about what you need to think of as a founder also as you're deciding how much you want to put and how much you want to take out of a venture. Yeah. About five years into the business, we started thinking about how much we wanted to grow. And we started thinking, do we want to turn this into a big agency where we have a receptionist and assistants and a salesperson and office space and employees? And I think that we both realized pretty quickly that we really liked how our lives were. And I think everyone has this idea that you always have to be growing. And I think with growth comes a lot of stress. (laughs) And if you're making a decent salary, which we were by that time, sometimes it's okay to just keep things right where they are. And every year we've we've done a little better and a little better, but we've never had that big jump where we've gotten that big office and hired people. And I remember once we hired one person, they were our best contract. And we just thought, let's hire this person and they can take all the projects. And as soon as we hired this person, the quality of work went way down. And it was the most stressful three months of my life. And we were getting into a meeting where we were going to fire him and he quit right before we could fire him. And we're so relieved, but we haven't ever hired anyone since then. And everyone just who works for us is a contractor. And I really hate to be stressed out. So I put a lot of things in place so that I'm not stressed out. I don't want to have to worry about making payroll. So with contractors, the project comes in, we pay our contractors, we split the profit. And we really don't have any overhead and we never have. We've always been really careful with costs. We had an office together for a while, which was really fun. But even our office was just like this rinky-dink little place. It wasn't, neither of us are big spenders. And I think that's why we've been able to be so successful. You have a a creative agency. You have a, a certain number of things that you're good at as a creative voice overall. How do you make sure that the culture of the agency stays intact working with all those contractors? How do you make sure that they operate according to the values that you and Dan, right? Yeah, we're really, really careful about who we hire. A lot of our contractors have been with us for 10 years or more. When we find somebody we like, we really take good care of them. And we pay our contractors really well. They're all senior level writers with subject matter expertise. And that was a decision we made early on too, is that we didn't want to bring on junior writers and train them. Because again, that's a lot of time. And then I'm having to rewrite everything. I'd so much rather give a project to a writer that I know can do a better job than I can do. I'm happy. The client's happy. 
I'm paying out more money, but then I'm not having to do the work myself so I can take on more projects. So that's what we're always looking for. I mean, we're looking for writers that have are writing at a very high level. And we're looking for writers who can manage their own time. I don't really care when they work. You know, we look, we, we actually, there's a lot of, we hire a lot of parents who used to be in the corporate world and have left to raise a family or pursue other interests. And those people are really good at managing their time. So, you know, if they want to work at night, they want to work on the weekends, I don't care as long as they're meeting their deadlines. And then we always start out by giving them a really small project that we can keep a close eye on. And then if they do well with that, we'll give them another project. And it gets to a point where sometimes, you know, the client always has to initiate projects with us first, but they'll develop really nice relationships with our clients. And we want to hire the kinds of writers that we feel comfortable bringing into a meeting. And then I guess the last thing, and this is important, is we really want to like them. You know, we want to be able to joke around with them and have a nice relationship and work with somebody who doesn't define themselves by their copywriting projects. And what I mean by that is they don't take criticism personally. I had a boss ask me once, I was applying for a copywriting job and he said, do you do any writing besides copywriting? And I said that I did. And he said, good, because I don't like to hire people where copywriting is their art because then they can't, they take it too personally when I tell them to revise things. And I, I think about that a lot when I hire my copywriters. Like, how's the first draft? But then even more important, how's the second draft? Do they take feedback from the client? Do they complain to me about the client? I don't want to hear them complain about my clients. I want writers that are pretty easygoing, competent and easygoing. It sounds like you have a, a pretty clear vision of the type of people you want to work with you. How does that translate into the process of selecting clients? So, you know, you don't want your copywriters complaining about their clients, but you spend 20 years advertising. <laughs> And you know that sometimes the copywriters actually write when they're complaining. Absolutely. The way I feel about it is I will always tell a client what I think, but ultimately it's their decision because they're paying the bill. So I'll say for just for a funny example, I, I really don't think that we should put an exclamation mark after every sentence. I, I don't think that sounds good. And I feel like it's my duty to say that to them. But if they're like, we just love exclamation marks, we want you to do that. I'll do it because they're paying the bills. But I think I'm also pretty careful. I actually really, really love pretty much all of my clients. And if I don't love them, I probably won't work with them again. And that's, that's rarely happened. I think, I think there's a natural selection. I mean, I think people look at our website, we use a lot of humor in our website, it's a very conversational style. So I think the kinds of clients that are attracted to us are a good fit. I always think about the Leo Burnett speech when you will have to take my name off the door and in a trade and a profession where everybody knows when you've done the work, there may be a situation where you may have to go to your client and say, hey, I, I don't want to put that into market. How do you navigate that? We've turned down clients, you know, if we don't feel like our values align with theirs, we've chosen not to work with certain clients and other clients, if we really believe in them, we'll give them a really good deal. You know, we have a not a ton of nonprofits, but a handful of nonprofits and they're paying less than our other clients because we believe in what they're doing. Because we're small and we don't have an, a big overhead, we can be really picky in who we work with. It's something we think about a lot. You know, we want to like our writers. We also really want to like our clients. I had to break up with a client a week ago. It was really stressful and I haven't had to do that. I probably only had to do that a handful of times in, in 20 years. It's always when I don't trust my gut. And I had a bad feeling about taking this project, 
but I really like the designer who's working on it. So I'm like, I'm just going to do it as a favor to her. It probably won't be that bad. And it was horrible. It was hard to leave the project, but it just wasn't a good fit. I really like what you said around the fact that the not having overhead allows you this freedom because I think the people often don't think about the operational choices that they make and how they impact how they want to operate. Obviously, if you really want to work and be picky with your clients, you need to be in a position of strength where you are not in a position where financially you need your clients. I want to move to something you mentioned earlier, which is that you're also the producer of the TEDx event in Portsmouth. And there's a few things that I'm interested in. The first part is... As a, as a producer of a TEDx event in a town like Portsmouth, you have a responsibility and a leadership role for your community. So how do you think about that role and the responsibilities you have towards your community? So I don't get paid for TEDx. It's all volunteer. And everyone on our team is a volunteer, but I'm at the top. So I'm not getting paid either. The way I run my company is I find people that are great at what they do. I pay them a lot of money, they do a great job, and we move on. And I, I try to apply that same model with my TEDx team. We have a designer. She's a fantastic designer. I don't like micromanaging people. So I, I like to hire people who already know what they're doing. But I realized pretty early on that the same management style wasn't working for me because they weren't getting paid. So instead, I had to pay them with praise, appreciation. I had to stop and really remember to thank them. Not that I'm not gracious with my own writers, but I'm giving them money. That's their thank you. And and I, and I they know I like them and appreciate them. I had to really kind of shift how I interacted with them and be much more appreciative because they weren't getting paid. And that was hard. You were one step ahead of me because the second question is, how do you lead? It's almost like a group where you're leading, where you have the accountability, but in some ways not the authority. So how do you think about that relationship and yeah. leading the group of people that are working with you? I think because I'm not getting paid, it's really important to me that I really like the people that I'm working with because I spend a lot of time with them. So I'm maybe even more careful about who I bring on to my TED team because we do spend a lot of time together and, and nobody's being compensated. But I also think you know, the compensation in a way is the feeling that you're doing really important work in the world. And so I think I want to work with people that really believe in the mission of TED and care about it and care about our community. And I've been really lucky to find some great people. We have a lot of people that have been on the team for years. And I think at this point, we have a really strong team. There's a design director, there's a marketing director, there's a fundraising director. Everyone's everyone's kind of a director. And they're they're all, they all know what they're doing. I don't think I could manage this team if everyone is a volunteer wanting to get experience with fundraising. I, I don't have time for that. I want to hire somebody who already knows how to do fundraising and is at a level in their career where they have some time to give back to the community. Those are the people that I like to work with. And as a result, the, the team runs really smoothly. So it sounds like really in a situation like that, the design of the team and the thinking up front is really crucial to the success. Right. And we get a lot of people who want to be on our team and we're careful about who we bring on because if I have somebody that isn't a good fit, it just creates so much chaos. People are upset. So everyone really likes each other and that makes it so much fun. And I have to remember to thank people. Luckily, I have a director who works with me who's so good at that. She's so good at remembering to say thank you. And I, I'm learning from her. 
obviously TED Talks are, are of interest to a lot of leaders. And I know you produce and you're starting to coach people mm -hmm. yeah. on how to come up with a TED Talk idea. So for somebody who's listening now and they're thinking about like, oh, you know, TED Talk sounds like an interesting idea. Where would you start? I think that most people have a TED Talk in them. It's not necessarily something that's related to your career, although it can be. It's usually just something that you're really passionate about and that you think a lot about. It's something that usually finishes the sentence, I wish people understood X, Y, and Z. And then usually the X, Y, and Z is your TED Talk. So my first piece of advice is once you think about the general area that you want to talk about, the general subject area, watch a lot of successful TED Talks that are in that subject area too. I think the best way to be a good TED speaker is to watch other TED Talks because there's there really is a formula to it. They like to say that every talk is unique, but there really is. You, you throw somebody into a scene to start and then it funnels down to your big idea. Then there's usually three sections that back up your big idea. And then it's, it's a recap and closing with a call to action. If you start watching TED Talks, you'll become pretty familiar with that formula and you'll be able to kind of figure out what your own, what your own talk could look like. The TED Talk is one format, but in general, I think people may be interested in speaking or writing to develop intellectual leadership. What are some ways to get into the process for somebody who has never done that? I think what makes TED Talks so special, and you can certainly apply the lessons from TED Talks to any kind of public speaking you want to do, it's really all about storytelling. Instead of saying, boy, I worked really hard today. Tell me what you did to work hard. Or oh, my, my boss is so annoying. Well, what did he do that was so annoying? Paint a picture. It's always about drawing somebody into a scene. And that scene explains the point that you're trying to make. It's the old writing, show, don't tell. I'm sure your listeners are yes. familiar with that. Again, just like good writing, saying it in as, in as few words as possible. In graduate school, my writing professor used to say, get rid of the throat clearing. That's all the sort of like the, the jumbly, tangled up introduction. Get rid of that and just jump right into it. That's one of the things I love about TED Talks and really any, any good talk. There's, there's a lot of passion there. I think that people who give TED Talks, they, they really want to get a message out into the world. And sometimes it's hard to find that same passion if you're trying to motivate your sales team to sell printers, but you want to find your reason for speaking. Like, why do you want to communicate this message? Why does it matter to you? Why is it important? And those are always, those are always better talks when you can feel that, that, have the passion behind it, I guess. As you're talking about speaking and writing and storytelling, just a, a question came to mind. So you spent a lot of time studying writing in different formats and art. How did that process influence the way that you actually think and that translate into sort of the action and the way that you manage the people that you work with in all, all the different environments? When I was an undergrad, I was actually an art major. And when I went to grad school, I took a poetry class, actually took a few poetry classes. And I actually feel like the poetry classes were more helpful than any other class I've taken to become a copywriter because it teaches you to be really spare with words and really deliberate in your choice. I, I always say that to somebody that wants to be a copywriter. They take a poetry class. It's just, it was so helpful. And I, I think I lost the thread of what your question was. That was a great point. The question was also about how has developing your trade in artistic forms and influenced your thinking 
overall, the way that you think and the way that you approach work in general, if at all? I think that I've always been a really creative thinker. And I think it's easy to get ourselves blocked, whether we're trying to solve a problem in life or a problem with work. And I know that when I'm working on a project and I have to write about something, if I have to come up with a clever headline, one of my favorite things to do is just come up with all the bad ideas first. And then I know that as soon as I make myself laugh, that's usually when the good idea comes after that because I've relaxed. And then I can think more clearly. It's hard to think clearly in life when you're feeling really stressed out. And I I say that to my TED speakers. I say, make the audience laugh early in your talk because then you'll relax, they'll relax, and you will have won them over. So I use humor a lot. And you know that's something that our clients tell us a lot. They say, your writing on your site is so funny. We really like that. I think people are really afraid in business to use humor. And I think it's underutilized. Underutilized or sometimes poorly utilized. But I want to switch to something that certainly when poorly utilized could be a great source of humor, but in reality is actually pretty serious. A few days ago, you and I had a conversation on how AI, artificial intelligence, has impacted your business. So I'm wondering if you would be willing to share some of what we talked about and some of the ways specifically that ChatGPT has impacted your business, both in a positive and a negative way. Yeah, I I would love to share that because it's something that I've thought about a lot and it's happened fast. So my my dad was a professional photographer when I was growing up and had a really successful business until suddenly everyone had a camera in their pocket. He actually did a really good job of keeping up, but I saw how a lot of his colleagues just went out of business and had to do other things. And I remember a few years ago, we had a really great speaker at TED on the TED stage who talked about how to future-proof your business and how you can't bury your head in the sand and you need to always be learning and evolving. So I remember last December or a year ago, December, my husband said to me, he said, what do you think about ChatGPT? And I remember I said, what's ChatGPT? And then within a month, I just felt like I was slammed into a brick wall. And we have lost a lot of business. You know, I'm planning on working for about 20 more years, so I'm not ready to retire. So I've had to really think hard about what to do. We've lost a lot of tech clients, I think, because they don't necessarily care as much as maybe a consumer brand about having a really original voice. And we haven't been getting as much agency work as we normally do. You know, I've been running TEDx for a long time. So I went to TED Women back in the fall, and they had part of the day, it was tell us something you can do. I'm really good at X, fill in the X, and you can sign up for expert panels. Talk to me about speech writing. And right away, my whole day filled up with appointments. And I started to realize I know a lot about this. You know, I've been just been doing this volunteer for so long. And I just started offering that as a service. And it's been really interesting. It's really filled the gap in business for me. Because it's something that has to happen face-to-face. You know, ChatGPT could write you a really boring talk about finding your authentic voice, but it's going to take a person to dig and dig and dig and ask you the right questions to find the real talk there. So I've been really enjoying that. I'm trying not to bury my head in the sand. I actually use ChatGPT a lot for my work. And the way I use it is I do a lot of writing, like I said, for consumer brands. So for a footwear client, I might ask ChatGPT, why would a construction worker need arch support in their footwear? 
and then chat GPT will give me a great answer. And I like it so much better than using Google because with Google, you get a ton of ads and advertisements for footwear companies. So it's been a good resource for me. So it's, yeah, positive and negative, but I'd say mostly negative if I'm honest. In some ways, it seems that the value-add portion of the work is the only portion that's left. Yeah. I mean, you're not going to need to hire a copywriter to write a really simple blog like five ways to winterize your home. ChatGPT can write that. So I think that the high-level work is going to stick around. The clients that really want to have a unique voice, thought leadership pieces, anything that's kind of clever, unusual. So that sort of higher-level work is going to stick around. And honestly, that's most of our work anyway, because we made the decision early on to do higher-level writing rather than, I don't know, writing for anyone. So or maybe affected less than some copywriting agencies. But I've been surprised by how much I felt the impact. Any other tips for people who are thinking about how ChatGPT and AI are going to impact their work? What are some steps that you think they could take? You have to wrap your head around the fact that it's not going away first and go through go through a little bit of mourning. I felt like I was in such a great place with my company. I didn't have to work that much. I had all these great writers. Our writers aren't getting as much work as they used to. I'm actually taking on more work, so I'm working harder than I used to. And then I would say, find something that you're good at that demands face-to-face interaction. I think people still want to work with people. If you can spend more time with your clients, put in more FaceTime, they get to know you, you get to know them, they'll be probably less likely to replace you with ChatGPT. I don't know. I'm still figuring it out myself. <laughs> yeah. A couple of weeks ago, my guest, Stephen Klein, who is building an AI company, had this statement, which I thought was interesting. He said, I cannot outrun the bear, but I cannot run you. AI is going to replace people who don't know how to use AI faster than it's going to replace people who are going to know how to use AI. So you better get your act together and learn it. So luckily, you're still doing your work. And you're still available for work. So if people want to find you, work with you, where can they go? So our website is thehiredpens.com. And I'm just Anna at thehiredpens.com. And then our TEDx Portsmouth site is just tedxportsmouth.com. So that's where they can find me. Great. So now we're going to move to the personal questions. And the first question is, do you have a hobby or an interest outside of work? And how has that impacted your work? Yes, that's a good question. I go for long walks just about every day. And while I'm on walks, I'll often pick up interesting things that I find on the ground, like a flattened piece of metal or something like that. And I'll, I do a lot of collage art. And what I love about doing visual art is that it gets me out of my head and into my body. And I feel like if you spend a lot of time thinking, whether you're a writer, computer programmer, whatever, you need to do something physical to keep yourself balanced. I like working with my hands when I can. I also discovered gardening last year. I, I always swore I would never get into gardening. And then all of a sudden, I'm like, oh, this gardening is actually really fun. And I, and I think it's the, the sort of the digging in the dirt and the just like doing something physical to balance all this time I spend in my head. That's great. Now, my favorite question of the podcast is every era has a business expression or some cliches that are so overused that they lose meaning. Um, which is the one that drives you crazy? And you can go more than one if you want. <laughs> yeah, I've always hated the word synergize. I think it's a really just a stupid word that doesn't really mean anything. But there's this new phrase that I, I absolutely hate and I refuse to use. I don't know if you've heard it. Have you heard of a bio break? 
instead of saying, go to the bathroom, it's let's take a bio break. I refuse to say that. I think that's horrible. I, I knew that this was one of your questions. So I was looking up words and I found this word. Have you ever heard of voluntold? No. It's enforced volunteerism. When your company makes you volunteer, voluntold. I also, I, I have so many of these. I also hate it. I hate it when you go to a store. This is, this is more of a personal thing. And you make a purchase. And instead of saying, thank you, the person says, no worries. Yeah, I know it's no worries. It's your job to hand me the coffee. That makes me crazy. I, and I know it's just an expression and I should get over it. But yeah. That's great. So final question, I call it food for the body or food for the soul. And you can choose if you go the body right, a recipe or a drink of something that right now you love and enjoy. Or if you go the soul route, a piece of art, a book, a movie, a song, a theater, like something artistic that nourishes your soul right now. Maybe it's because it's the winter or maybe it's my Scottish roots, but when I need a break, just making a cup of tea with a lot of sugar and a lot of milk. And it makes me really happy. And I'll sit in my swinging chair, maybe with my cat and just swing for a while and drink my tea. And that's, that's a really happy thing to do. <laughs> that's great. Anna, thank you so much for doing this. No worries. I see what you did there. <laughs> no, thank you. This is really fun. It was great to talk to you. Thank you for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed it, find a friend who may like it and tell them that they should listen to it. Also, you may have listened to every single episode so far, in which case I am really thankful. But most likely you haven't, so go find a few others and listen to them. And if you really like the show, tell all your friends and post about it on social media. Every little bit helps. Make sure you're subscribed to the show on your favorite listening platform so you don't miss any episode. And if you listen on a platform that allows ratings and reviews like Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Audible, Good Pods, please leave us a stellar rating and a review. Five stars. Stay tuned because after the credits, I will play a song by Susan Cattaneo, one of Boston's best Americana singer-songwriters. For more information on the episode and all the links, go to the website al4ep.com, spelled with the number four. You can email me at dino at al4ep.com. Make sure you follow the podcast on whatever social platform you're on. The handle on Twitter and on Instagram is at AL4EDP with the letter D. And on Facebook, look for Authentic Leadership for Everyday People. This episode was produced by me, Dino Cattaneo. It was recorded remotely with Squadcast and edited using Descript. In addition, there were edits by Pro Podcast Solutions. The theme music was composed, produced, and arranged by Nicolas Cattaneo, who also played keyboards and drums with Tony Savarino on guitar and Jesse Williams on bass. And now, here's a song by Susan Cattaneo. It's from her album Brave and Wild, and it's called Love Takes What It Takes Till It Takes. Till